At Cool Air Products, we developed AC Smart Seal Quick Shot with professionals in mind. It's the only product on the market that's three in one, with sealant, lubricant, and UV dye all in a single application. It's non toxic, non flammable, 100% safe to the touch, eco friendly, and compatible with all refrigerants. It's a safe solution option, backed by years of R&D, Intertech tested, and has sealed millions of leaks. AC Smart Seal, the professional's choice. Okay guys, here's a scoop. Great interview today. We have Jim Bergman on the podcast from Measure Quick, and we're going to have a great discussion. Before we get into that, I want to tell you about a really cool documentary I've been watching. It's called One Strange Rock on Netflix. It's narrated by Will Smith, and it's an astronaut's perspective from looking down from space onto the earth and the things that happen on earth and how things that happen in one continent are intertwined with things that are happening in another continent. And episode three has been one of the the cooler ones so far because it kind of talks about heating and cooling of the earth, right? And I'll give you a couple of examples and I'm not going to give away the whole, the whole episode, but the earth, the earth's core is in constant motion and that creates a magnetic field around the earth. And that helps protect the earth from the sun, which I thought was phenomenally cool. Like I've never heard of that before until I watched this documentary. The other thing is that the earth has a natural air conditioning system. And you can probably hear the sirens because I'm downtown, downtown Toronto, and I'm sitting in my truck doing the intro. But the earth has a natural air conditioning system. Okay. And the way it works, or first, carbon dioxide, whether it's natural or whether it's man-made, okay, it's in the air, and it kind of hovers around the earth, not allowing heat to escape from the planet, okay, we have too much heat on our planet, we can cause it to overheat, so the way it cools itself down is the rainstorms come in, the rain washes that carbon dioxide away into rivers and streams, and it ends up in the oceans, on the bottom of the ocean, and they actually have a really, really cool aerial view from space showing this happening showing this washout into the ocean it's very very cool stuff i recommend it if you guys like that kind of stuff so anyway guys on the podcast jim bergman we're going to talk about not gauging up on pms and how gauging up is kind of the last resort okay we're going to talk about a few things as well we're going to we're going to talk about measure quick and how measure quick can help with this process all right very cool conversation. You might have to listen a few times. These sirens keep coming. Here comes another fire truck. You might have to listen another few, a few more times after the first one to absorb all the information because Jim's smart and he throws a lot of information at us. This is the HVAC Know It All podcast. I'm your host, Gary McCready. So before we get to Jim on the interview, I just want to tell you about something that is interesting to me. Okay, you hear the ad off the top, cooler products, oil-based sealant, non-clogging, non-toxic. I've used it. It works if in the right application for a leaky evap. It works in the right application. Now, cooler products has a customer that was so tired of dealing with warranty evaporator leaks that he started to put this in all his brand new residential installs. And it's been successful so far. So just some information for you. Okay, I'm just letting you know what he does and how it's been successful for him because he realizes that the customer, he's the, the customer is the one he's got to keep happy, not the manufacturer, the customer. The customer is the one that's paying him money. It's embarrassing to go back six months, a year later, a year and a half later to deal with an evaporator that's leaking and say, hey, I put in good equipment, but the customer, well, why is my evaporator leaking? Well, I put in good equipment. So to stop that argument from happening, to stop these embarrassing warranty calls, he started doing this and he's had success. Okay, you take that as you will. I'm just passing along the information. Okay, coming up on the 16th of September, 16th to the 20th is Dan Foss Refrigerant, Refrigerant, I'm getting all tongue-tied. Refrigerant week. I was going to say refrigeration week, but it's refrigerant week. Dan Foss, refrigerant week. Okay, there's all kinds of um, educational stuff. And what I'll do in the podcast summary, I'll drop some links so you guys can go check out that stuff. Wet rag from Refrigeration Technologies. I've actually seen a bunch of pictures on it lately. 
it just reminds me that wet rags there for you guys um, when you're brazing up your TX valves, your reversing valves, your hot gas bypass valves, anything that you want to keep cool. You want to keep it cool. You don't want it to overheat. Wet rag is designed for that exact purpose. So check it out, guys. And House Call Pro, once again, uh, cream rises to the top, I guess. And every time there's a discussion about work order software, House Call Pro is mentioned the most. And there must be a good reason for that. That's one of the reasons I've decided to partner up with them. Okay? And shout their name out at the top of the mountain. So, guys, if you're interested in moving forward with paperless software for your business, check out housecallpro.com forward slash HVAC. Know it all again. I'll leave a link in the podcast summary. Jim, how you doing today? Good, Gary. How are you? I'm doing awesome. I actually just finished changing a bearing on a Liebert unit, and it went extremely well. And uh, I was I was kind of was kind of a little scared that it would take longer than normal, and I wouldn't get <laughs> to the phone call with you today. But it went so well. I had time to eat lunch and relax and write a few notes down before we got onto the call. So I'm glad it worked out that way. Oh, good. Yeah, I uh, I used to work on a lot of those uh, for computer rooms. So uh, that uh, it goes back a few years. But um, yeah, I always liked working on Liebert equipment. It's pretty interesting stuff, and it's once you get to understand it, it's not that bad. It's a little intimidating when you first look at one, just because they're so compact and all the wiring and all the controls and hot gas bypass and dehumidification, all that stuff. But I don't know. Once you get to work on them, they're actually pretty fun. Yeah, they are. They are. I, I mean, and working inside in a clean environment, it's um, it really is awesome. I mean, and and this room and air conditioned and and air conditioned and dehumidified and tons and tons of backup. So I had one unit off, and the room was still at seventy degrees. So it was awesome. So um, we want to have a discussion on checking systems without using gauges, and this is kind of close to my heart because I've been forced to do this over my career. And I'm going to tell you why, um, in a, in a second, but you're, you're good with having that conversation and we're going to bring up the, your app measure quick. And, um, I'll, I'll be, I'll be honest, full disclosure. I haven't tried it. Um, but I know you have a non evasive, uh, type test that you can check machines without gauges, correct? Oh yeah. It's been built in for probably over a year now and that's that's been something that we pushed you know i, I don't know i about I want to say 2005 i wrote an article for the hvac news on uh, checking the charge without gauges and it, it's been something i've been uh preaching for a long time and, and i actually didn't do it in my entire career until uh, until i got into education and started having time to look at equipment and got some questions from students that really I couldn't answer and I had to do a lot of research and, you know, figure out the why there's a lot of, a lot of things when you, in our industry, you, you see every day, but you never really, you know, you never really question them and you never really think about them too much. And, and, uh, outside of the context of maybe what they were presented. So it was just, uh, it's been an interesting road, but I think we're making some headway on this and, and, uh, people are starting to understand how it works. Yeah, and, and I do want to bring up the fact that these new modern VRF, VRV, whatever you want to call them, um, I know some manufacturers use different terminology, but they're, they're just monitoring the system performance and, and running operation and, and all the, uh, the troubleshooting codes that it spits back at you by, by temperature. It's not measuring pressure. So if, if a machine that's smart can do that, why can't we do the same thing, right? Oh yeah, for sure. And that's, that's the whole, there's not a, there's not a single thing that, you know, if you understand machine operation, then you can diagnose everything by, by temperature. And, and in fact, um, a lot of manufacturers like manufacturers of P-TECH units, manufacturers of, of household refrigerators, um, refrigeration guys have done this stuff for, for years. And, uh, we just didn't, applied in the air conditioning industry mm-hmm. and so i think it, 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 it's interesting and that you know and now that 
you know, years ago, you go in a lot of old books, you would never even see anything about superheat and subcooling because guys didn't measure it. You know, everything was weighed in, weighed in charge. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of testing was done by temperature back then because we didn't really use pressures and we sort of gotten away from it and we need to get back to it because it's, um, it's the best way of, of testing a system that you can do because you're not screwing up the refrigerant charge. You're not, you know, you're just, you're, you're not creating problems, problems that don't, you don't want to have happen. You know, it'd be like every time you go to your doctor getting your, you know, getting invasive surgery done so they could, you know, check your, check your heart or check your lungs or check <laughs> yeah. whatever. Just crack open your chest and see how that stuff looks. And then, uh, and then not expecting there's going to be some kind of a infection afterwards. That's what we do every day. We look up gauges. We're getting into a sealed system. We should keep sealed because nothing good comes from hooking up gauges. There's nothing good that comes from it. You know, it's the last thing we want to do if we can avoid it. And for most guys, it's the very first thing they do. And they don't even know what the pressure should be. So that That's the part, I think, if we're going to start this conversation, the thing that we we need to, first of all, start is if, if you can't tell me definitively what the pressure is going to be before you hook up your gauges, then why are you hooking up your gauges? Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't, it, the information you get is valueless. You go, oh, I can calculate superheat or subcooling. Well, great. Superheat and subcooling aren't the driving forces for heat and heat transfer. The driving forces are temperatures. It's a, it's a saturation temperature and it's an evaporation temperature that are going to drive the heat into the evaporator and out of the condenser. And if we're going to get that heat transfer rate at the right rate, we've got to know what the temperature differences have to be. If you can't tell me what they are, then you're just, you're wasting everybody's time, you know, and that's, that's, that's where we start at. And I bet you 90% of the time I've gone into classrooms and taught courses and I ask people, what are the pressures going to be? They look at me like a deer in a headlight because they just they have no idea. Mm-hmm. Nobody's taught them. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell you why I've been forced to do this. And the first time, and then I'll let you go on and, and let you explain how your measure quick non-invasive test works and get and go into more okay. detail about it. So the first time I ever mentioned, or the first time I ever said on social media, Hey, I don't put gauges on everything cause I don't have time. I just got hammered. Oh, you're, you're doing it in injustice to your customer and you should be doing this and you should be doing that. And I'm like, Okay, well, whatever, but this this is my deal. So I work in the GTA. The GTA stands for the Greater Toronto Area, and it's a big city, okay? We are saturated with HVAC refrigeration companies. There is a lot of them, okay? And and what the customers do, the customers know this. The customers, they tender out every three years maintenance contracts, or they will tender out installs, or... If, if you have a maintenance contract with a company for five years and some guy knocks on the door, sometimes they say, I can give you a better price and they like the price and they go with it. So we're constantly hammering down the amount of time that we have to do these jobs. And it's no fault of the company owner. It's the fault of the customer searching for a better price and not realizing that when they lower the price every time, they're lowering the value they get in return from the time that's spent on the equipment. And I'm going to give you a perfect example. I have a building that I take care of personally. And I have on that building rooftops. I have condensing units for walk-in boxes. I have ductless splits. There's approximately 55 circuits of refrigeration. Okay, there's about 150 filters that need to be changed. On top of that, there's grease bearings. There's belts. There's checking contactors and checking coils and all that stuff. And I got 20 hours to complete that. So... How in the world does anybody have time to stick gauges on 55 circuits? So I've had to rely on, I call it HVAC six cents, just a, a term that I just made up just to be kind of funny and, and say, I use my hands, blah, 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 blah. And, and what I learned back when I was in refrigeration school is that the palm of your hand roughly is about 93 degrees Fahrenheit, roughly. If you're, if you're healthy, you're not like smoking hot outside. So, you can use that as a judgment call. So anything, if you feel a pipe, it's colder than your hand. It's colder than 93. If it's warmer than your hand, it's, it's above 93. So the things that, that we've looked at is sound, um, feeling, uh, listening or touch and, and looking, right? So you feel the pipes, you look at the condensate coming out the drain, you feel the, the temperature coming off the top of the condenser fan coil. 
Uh, you go into the space. Is it comfortable? Is it reaching set point? Is it humid? Is it not? All these things factor in. And then if, if that's all good, you just move on. You don't, you don't spend any more time on the thing because we have no time to do it. So you know, what, do, what do you think about that situation? Well, I mean, it's, uh, I hate to, hate to say it's common sense, but I mean, it, it really, it really is. I mean, it's, you know, guys, guys freak out about things all the time, but I don't really seriously uh, wonder how many people listen to this podcast have ever checked their own unit at home, right? I mean, you walk home every single day, you might change the filter every couple of months when you remember to do it. But I mean, I haven't hooked it, you know, if, if I didn't do demos of measure quick, I wouldn't even hook gauges to my own system at home. My dad had one that for 20, 25 years was an old train, uh, two stage system. It actually had two ton and a half compressors in it. I checked the charge for the first time in 30 years for my dad before he sold the house. It had never been checked, right? And, but why did we never check it? Well, it was always comfortable in the house. It was always reaching to that point. You know, my dad would walk out in the back. You see the condenser need to be cleaned. We rinse out the condenser. We change the filter, and we never, we never ever check check the charge in the system. And we never really, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I don't know if you popped open the top of it every maybe five or ten years to look at contactors and stuff like that. But you pretty much knew, you know, the general life expectancy of some of the components, and they didn't need to be checked on a monthly or quarterly basis because they just simply weren't going through the kind of wear and tear that was going to, you know, that was going to damage them because we weren't, the biggest thing, you know, is when equipment's not running right and it short cycles and it goes through, um, you know, long extended periods of poor operation, dirty condenser, low airflow, um, you know, things like that, 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 that's where we got to inspect equipment more frequently because it's, it's got an unusual number of starts and stops, but, if it's running right, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm going to look for the trouble spots, and uh, you know, I always obviously do visual inspections, filters, belts, you know, that kind of stuff. But what you're talking about is is um, more the way equipment should be serviced, rather than this full, uh, totally invasive mode. I think, honestly, God, I think guys create more problems sometimes than they fix. You know, they leave caps off. They, they loosen up panels and panels fall off in the wind because they're, you know, they're, they're trying to buzz through and get work done in an unreasonable amount of time. Sometimes, if you really think about it, it would have been better off had they not done what they had done because they, the equipment was running fine before they got there. Now they created a callback mm-hmm. because they did maybe in, in, in excess of what they should have to, you know, to get essentially uh, a no change result. In other words, they inspected everything, but they didn't do anything yeah, exactly, and, exactly. and they and that invasive process created issues they might not otherwise have had mm-hmm. yeah and, and i agree with you like i i've been in my home for about six and a half years i installed the unit the first year we've been in there and i haven't had gauges on it since and the only thing i've ever done is i, I flipped my contactor over to a um an emerson sure switch uh just to test out and the thing's been awesome actually to, to be honest with you on a side note, yeah. but I haven't had my gauges on that thing in six and a half years and it's been running fine. But if I called in a service company, they probably would have <laughs> gauged up every single time to check it and who knows what, what would have happened. So, um, and <laughs> I totally agree. That's right. If you think about your home refrigerator, right. If it, and, and, you know, guys don't think about this, but any, any of us that own a refrigerator, which is probably everybody listening to podcasts, right. If your refrigerator broke, don't tell me the first thing you do is run out and buy some piercing valves and tap into the sealed system and see if it's if it's working right. You check the door gaskets, you check the milk, make sure it's not blocking the evaporator. You you might check and pull it out and see if the condenser's dirty. And you know you're going to go through all these little preliminary checks before you'd ever you know you'd probably even measure a compressor amp draw, you know, and and fill the discharge line and fill the suction line. You do a, a ton of preliminary tests before you ever tap into the refrigeration. That's the very last thing you do. And you go, yeah, well, that's because it's a sealed system. Well, so is every other system we work on. They are, they're all sealed. They all should be sealed. It just happens to be some have access ports and some don't. Mm-hmm. So if we if we wouldn't put an access port on a machine to test it, why would you use an access port to test it when there's all these things you could do ahead of time that would end up with the same result, right, to get the machine fixed? 
somebody made a comment and, and I can't, I think it was on LinkedIn because I asked this question a couple weeks ago just, just to see what everybody's thoughts were. And it's funny because the first time I asked to the second time I asked, some of the opinions have changed over time. So there's the, the word is getting out. So somebody said, I almost wish that units wouldn't come with, with service valves on them. And I'm like, Hmm, I'm like, actually that might be a good idea because then guys couldn't stick their gauges on. And if there was a problem, then they, then they do have to go out and, and add in a valve or, or two or something like that. Uh, but it, I thought it was a, a fantastic idea, to be honest with you. What do you, what do you think about that idea? These units being shipped out without ports well, on them that are pre-charged already. Well, we used to do that. I mean, you know, everybody thinks all this stuff's new, but you know, back when I first started as industry 30 years ago, I was on the tail end of the, you know, six to eight year equipment, nine year equipment. I mean, I, I literally, when I was graduating from vocational school in the 80s is when they came out with a 10 sear. Well, before that, you know, in fact, it's interesting in vocational school, I never even learned to hook up a vacuum pump, right? Because we, we just didn't have to do that that often, or maybe my instructor was lame. I'm not sure. One of the two, probably both. But um, the thing was is that all the equipment came with AeroQuip fittings, and you they were 100% sealed from the factory. And, uh, you know, so the line set was pre-evacuated and pre-charged. The system was pre-evacuated and pre-charged. And literally all you did was connect the pieces together and the system had a correct charge in it. And, you know, those systems, I mean, I've still seen some from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, well, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s, you know, that are still, that were, you know, they probably used AeroQuip fittings around, I want to say maybe 75 to, you know, up, up into the late 80s, you'd see them on systems. Those those systems, if they're put in right, they're still running today. And the reason, big part of it is because the only thing, the only thing the technician had to get right was the airflow because the charge was right from the factory. And, um, you know, I, I think the re- big reason we need service ports today is we're not doing pre-charged line sets anymore. We're, you know, we're brazing everything up in the field and doing our own line sets, and that's why we had to have a porch to evacuate. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, aside from that, if you think about PTEC units, window units, small refrigerators, small appliances, none of them come with service ports on there. Well, why not? They're, they're critically charged, and they're charged right from the factory, and if they're sealed up right, we don't have to mess with them again. So it's it's not like we need service ports to do anything. We Honestly, we don't need them for anything on the equipment except – for the initial charging. After that, as far as I'm concerned, if we put the equipment in right, we could, you know, we could darn near braze the caps on and be done with it. I mean, that's, uh, we we really don't need access to those anymore. If you do, if you charge a system once right, there's only two times you should have to, I mean, realistically, we need, we need ports when we install it and we need ports when we decommission it, you know, take the gas out and we don't really need those. I mean, we could put, you know, tap, temporary taps on if we had to, but you get what I'm saying is there's only, the only time in the life of the system when we should really be putting the gauges on is initial commissioning. And then, you know, when when our temperature relationships no longer hold true because we have a, a leak due to vibration, former carry corrosion, something like that, then, then we might need to put gauges on the system. But in, in general, if the system if the system remains leak free over its lifetime, you'd you'd never want to put gauges on it. Over the you know over the lifetime of the equipment, there's just no reason to. Yeah, and and when I was thinking about this, it kind of baffled me because I have rooftops, package rooftops that are pre-charged from the factory, sitting on roofs right now that haven't had a set of gauges on them ever. Like, and and I take care of them summer after summer after summer, and summer after summer they are cooling and satisfying spaces, and we're getting rid of moisture and and everything's good. And <laughs> I haven't had gauges on them once. So, I mean, the argument for me is I, I don't need to have the argument with myself anymore because I already know that not hooking up works. And hooking up is good for troubleshooting, yes. I'm not going to take that away from anything. It's good for troubleshooting, but it's not good for the system in general because our hoses, we could have air, we could have moisture, we could have contaminated oil, we could put in a different refrigerant. All of those things and any of those above – that could all be potentially put into a system that's running well. Yeah, well, you know, your argument, though, that it's good for troubleshooting, in my mind, doesn't even hold true. Because well, yes, to a certain open, extent. Our open heart surgery is good for troubleshooting. We can make sure that sucker's beating. We can make sure 
you know, that there's, you know, it's like, okay, there's 10,000 other ways we can check your heart before we get an invasive. So, you know, it's, it's a last step, not a first step. All we got to do is just reverse the, st- reverse the thinking. So mm-hmm. If you always think about, um, evasive versus non-evasive, open heart surgery versus just, uh, listening with the stethoscope in your brain, that's going to help you because, uh, the last thing we want to do is crack open your chest and see what's going on with your heart when we got all these other ways of, of testing before we get to that point. And it's the same thing with check and charge on an air conditioning system. We've got a ton of tests we can do. And the neat thing is they're super easy. You don't frostbite your fingers and you don't, uh, you don't, you don't introduce contaminants into the, uh, into the, into the system. Right. Yep, yep. So, um, you know, I mean, you talk about, you know, the things in, in our, in our industry, um, we just we just got to we just got to appreciate our thinking because we've been we we've, we've been taught the most of us have been taught the wrong way for our entire career. Now I think you guys up in Canada there you guys have to go through uh, you guys go through formalized schooling to be a refrigeration mechanic, right? You don't just put your name on the back of a business card call yourself a mechanic that, that's like, that's that's right down. yeah you have to be registered as an apprentice and then you have to go through a five-year apprenticeship and then do three blocks of schooling um like basic intermediate and advanced and then if you're in the union you also have um you also do extra schooling on top of that so i mean the the training the training is there and if you apply yourself i mean yeah you can become you can become a, a really good technician for sure but some of the the methods some of the methods that I learned were, were old school methods that, that were just oh, yeah. sort of changing around today. Like when I was in school, we were learning about, and this is maybe 10 years ago when I did my last block of school probably, or maybe a little bit more, but we're still lear- learning about a mechanical, a carrier um, mechanical time delay device that I'd only seen one of in my whole career up to that point. I'm like, why are we learning about this? Like, let's change it up a little bit. Come on. Well, and it's, uh, you know, I, I've seen, I've, I've been up to Vancouver and Vancouver Island and a couple other places. I haven't been all across Canada. I've been a decent way across Canada. But I've seen a, a, a very similar problems to, to, to the installations we've seen in the United States. Refrigerant charge problems, airflow problems. Uh, it's it's very interesting just because you guys have a lot more edu- education requirements up there doesn't mean you're educated any better it's it's um we see a lot of the same problems across the yep. across the industry across the world because we're we're all doing the same things incorrectly and we've all been taught the same you know a lot of the same ways and um you know if we don't change it we're not going to you know num- number one uh, I think, like you said before, some of these companies are going to work themselves into obsolescence because they they simply won't have the time to to do what they think they need to do, and therefore they won't do the things they should be doing. Because if you really think about it, about ninety percent of the work that HVAC technicians should be doing is cleaning work. We're we're really high paid janitors. We we're, we should be cleaning filters, cleaning coils, cleaning blowers. Um, you know, uh, doing a basic electrical maintenance, making sure contacts, you know, uh, connections are tight, making sure our contactors are in good shape and stuff. But uh, the ninety percent of the work that we're doing really re- revolves around being able to identify something that's that's um, dirty and causing a problem, and then taking care of that 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 issue. But most of the time, guys are so fixated on the wrong thing, like filling out a you know, points on a check sheet. I used to go out with guys, we'd have a 150 point test, you know, on an air conditioning system. And these guys were so fixated on doing the, getting everything filled out on their check sheet that they didn't know what each reading meant and what, why it was important. You know, if you, if you ask guys, well, okay, you just measured voltage, you know, it's got voltage because it's running. So, what did you measure the voltage for? And then is the voltage too high or is it too low? And what's the, what's the allowable range for that voltage? What's the allowable range for the temperature? If you look at measure quick, one of the things we do is every measurement we take, for the most part, with very few exceptions, has a, has a target so that you understand that, you know, an air conditioner, the return air dry bulb needs to be, to test it properly, needs to be between 70 and 85 degrees. 
right? It's got to have a wet bulb temperature range. I want to say it's like 55 to 67. It's got to have a, you know, there's a allowable range for total superheat. There's a allowable range for evaporator superheat. There's a allowable range for, for, um, airflow. Every measurement we take has got some kind of a range associated with it. We have to know what those ranges are. And if you're, if you're spending all of your time just making measurements, but you don't know what to do with them, then you're just wasting your time. And that's what a lot of guys get screwed up in our industry is, they, is what, what our job should be and what it is get conflicted and they're doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Our job is not just making measurements. It's knowing what to do with them. It's like going to your doctor and he's, you know, taking your temperature and, he, and it's 107 and he jots down 107 on your chart and then you, you go home and you die from infection, you can sure as hell bet somebody's going to figure out real quickly that the doctor was negligent, that he wrote down the reading, but he didn't realize that that's a symptom that is, you know, uh, a, a symptom of infection, you know, and that he missed something that's very important. Time after time, I've seen guys measuring combustion like CO readings, or I see superheats, or I see suction line temperatures, or I see you know, I see uh, gauge pressures and superheats that math doesn't add up, or I see suction line temperatures higher than 65 degrees. I'm like, you guys are missing, number one, you're, you're missing huge opportunities for repair. But number two is you're leaving yourselves open to, um, you know, to, to some some negligence that, you know, if, if I'm a either, and negligent could mean getting sued, but it could also mean just somebody coming in behind you and saying, Look, Mr. Homeowner, this guy's our customer. This guy doesn't know what he's doing because I can look at these work orders he left you right here and tell you that there's problems that exist that he didn't address right from the readings. And we've, you know, we've, I've done that over and over in years with, uh, you know, either expert witness work I've done or, um, or just, you know, going out to job sites where they've had continual problems and just looked at what the guys wrote down. And it's like plainly obvious that the problem has existed and somebody just kept overlooking it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let, let me, uh, give you the, the stage to, to tell everybody how measure quick, how the non-invasive, uh, test works. Like, so if somebody went and downloaded measure quick and they put their gauges down for a minute, how would they go about doing a non-invasive test to make sure the system was running correctly? So obviously measure quick, just a sidebar is a free app. You can, anybody can download it. You can do this testing. So you can, you can, Use Bluetooth tools or not depends. You know, if you if you have tools, it makes it a lot faster. If you don't have tools, you're in a trade school or whatever. If you got you know just a K-type thermocouple and gauges, you can put the information to measure quick, and it'll do the same thing. So may, no, maybe quickly, maybe quickly, we should. Uh, what tools are compatible with with the uh, with the app? So currently, we're we've got field piece, um, we've got Testo. Um, we're we're wrapping up today Sporlin, all the smart the pro r and the smart tools um we've got uh the energy conservatory lower gauge uh order gauge we've got uh AccuTools products we've got redfish products we've got um subco products we've got um uh we will be integrating in eventually the uh, cps uh I can't remember the name of the product, but it's a uh, you know uh, similar to the Testo and Field Piece products. Um, it, one of the questions becoming what doesn't work with Measure Quick because we're getting a lot of adoption from all the manufacturers across there. So, pretty much any connected tool you're going to purchase today will connect to Measure Quick, uh, if not now, soon. But the big, all the big players are already using our platform, and the reason they do it is we're doing things in Measure Quick that the manufacturers simply don't know how to do or don't want to try and duplicate because they're just too complex. So they, um, when you look at a typical Bluetooth tool, all, all they've done is eliminate the display and then redisplay the reading on your smartphone. So they might do superheat and they might do subcooling, but measure quick, we're doing diagnostics. We're doing advanced reporting. We're doing um, things differently than a lot of the other manufacturers are doing when it comes to uh, testing performance of equipment and um, airflow testing, all kinds of different things. So Measure Quick is very extensive. It goes across uh, air conditioning, refrigeration, heat pumps, uh, non-invasive testing, um, 
you know, a lot of, a lot of different things. So it's, it's, uh, a very broad and growing platform. And we've, we've been working on it for three years now and it's, it's going to continue to grow out, uh, as we go. So there, so what, what's available today for free is, um, is just amazing. I mean, if you, when people start to use it, see what it actually does and realize what they're paying for it, which is nothing. It, um, you know, it's, it, it, it does, uh, more than most people would imagine you could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, that's, that's, that's just a, a primer on that, but not a basis system testing. Um, so the reason we do it, it measure quick, if you use, if anybody's used measure quick, you notice that, uh, as I said earlier, we calculate targets for everything. So I, I'll tell you what the target is for the suction line temperature, the liquid line temperature, what the target is for the head pressure or suction pressure or, you know, anything like that. And because we get, we were calculating these targets, it's like, well, I, I already know what the target suction pressure is going to be. Well, why don't we even need to hook the gauge up? Because all, when you're hooking up the gauge, all you're doing is confirming that the calcul- the target that I calculated it should be is where it's at. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what's going on at Quick all the time is we're, you know, we're calculating the target off the drivers, whatever drives that reading. So in the case of like suction pressure, it's driven by return air dry bulb primarily. And outside of certain low conditions, it can also be driven a little bit by the humidity, but on almost all cases, almost exclusively driven by dry bulb temp. And then the condensing pressure is driven by the outdoor air temperature. And so if we start there, we know that those are the two driving forces. Then if I can tell you in the background what those are, then I don't really need to the gauges to tell you what they should be. And so when we're, we're not invasive testing, all we're doing is we're, we're calculating what the targets should be based upon the driving forces. And then we're doing a little bit of math to determine what the, um, what the suction line temperature or the liquid line temperature should be based upon those variables. And if, if they are, if they're within a, you know, five, three to five degrees of what they should be, then there's no need to even hook up the gauges. So what we're doing is just simply, um, making measurements that are, that are driving force measurements without measuring the resulting pressures. And then, then calculating if it was at that pressure, what would my suction line temperature be? So we're just we're just skipping the step of measuring pressure and, and going right to the temperature measurement, which is very easy to do. And if you think about like any charging chart you ever looked at, they'll tell you, you know, at this pressure, you should be at this line temperature. So if I can calculate what the pressure should be without measuring it, then and I and I know what the line temperature should be, then that's all I gotta do. And that's that's all non evasive testing is. It's just looking at at uh, driving forces and the resulting uh, temperatures that are going to come from that. So if we have, let's just say a standard two ton residential unit and someone mm-hmm. pulls up for a PM, how long would it take them start to finish like firing up the app and going through this test and getting the results that they're looking for? It'll take the equipment longer to stabilize than it will to get the results. The results are literally just touching a button, right? So, um, it takes the equipment, whenever you start a piece of equipment up, it takes the, or even if the equipment started and you just hooked up your temperature probes, there is what's called the stabilization period. So we have to wait for the temperature split to stabilize, and we have to wait for the suction line and liquid line temperatures to stabilize. Once those are stabilized, then I can immediately tell you if the system's charged right, and I can give you all kinds of information about how it's running. So... It, it literally takes three to five minutes to, to determine, uh, if the system's operating correctly and if we need to hook up the gauges to the system. Uh, and that's and having then, a know, probe. Three to five minutes. Sorry, sorry, go on. <laughs> I mean, you cut you off. No, in that three to five minutes, then I can, you know, um, then I can move on to the next one. And then obviously there's components where we're going to do a visual inspection. I'm going to visually look at, at, you know, at the, at the, uh, condenser visually look at the filter maybe the blower things like that. so i usually always start with a system off i do a quick visual inspection look at my condition my blower my evaporator coil check out what kind of metering device i've got look at my condenser real quick make sure that looks clean um and then then i'll start the equipment up and, and the amount of time it takes to stabilize i can literally have the results and i can do it in less time than you could because because the measure quick's doing the math for you 
I can do it in less time with an app than you could even probably make the measurements and record them on your paper by hand. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to get I'm trying to get a visual, create a visual for everybody listening because I know most people are visual people. So where are we taking these temperature readings in order to to get the information we want? So. First of all, you know, I always want to measure return air, wet bulb, and dry bulb. So I'm going to want to have a psychrometer and a return air. Okay. I want to measure outdoor air, dry bulb temperature. So I'm going to have a thermometer that's going to be in front of my condenser where the air is going into the condenser, out of line of sight of the sun, right? So I want to know what the air temperature is going in the condenser, not the, you know, I don't want it influenced by sunlight. Okay. And then I'm going to, I'm going to put a, a, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to put a, a clamp on the suction line or measure the temperature of my suction line uh, about six inches from the service valve, and same thing with the liquid line. So realistically, to get to get the basics of non-invasive testing, I need to return air, wet bulb, and dry bulb, liquid line temperature, suction line temperature, outdoor air temperature, and then if you want to get performance of the system, then I also need a supply air, wet bulb, and dry bulb of the system. So I can measure the temperature drop across the evaporator coil, and I can measure the uh, uh, grains of moisture removed. That's pretty cool. So now, now after talking to you, the next thing I got to do is <laughs> take my, my new Gen 2 uh, Testo Smart probes and try this out because um, I really want to see, I, I might have to try this at home as, as a test, but I really want to see uh, where these numbers fall into place. And what do you think about the the text? Because we have old school heads out there. And, and when I say old school, I don't mean in age. I just mean by the way you've been taught. Because a young tech at 25 years old can be old school because of the way he's taught. Um, and, and I, for me, old school is closed minded, not opening your mind and not listening and not hearing about new ways to do things that that's old school to me and just doing what you were taught and nothing else. So what do you think about the people that say smart tools and smart apps and all that are taking away skill from the trade? My opinion is you got, you got to know what you're looking at. You have to understand it all. Like you said, a doctor can't just write down a number and move on. I think it just makes you more efficient and more effective and which gives the customer more value because in the end, that's who we're working for. We're working for the customer to make money so they pay our bills. So if we're more efficient, more effective towards our customer, that makes us more successful in my mind. So so what do you think about that statement of these old school texts? You know, when when I was in high school, um, I, I, they gave me a, uh, a scientific graphing calculator. And when they handed me the calculator, it did not take away from my ability to learn math. In fact, when they handed me the calculator, it did absolutely nothing for me because I still couldn't do anything but the standard four functions that I had on my old calculator, which were, you know, add, subtract, multiply, divide. Mm-hmm. I didn't know, I didn't know how to use the cosine, the tangent, the sine button, the inverse button, the square root, the, the squared, or, you know, any of the advanced features of the calculator that would do, would do because I honestly didn't know how to apply those things to my, to, to my knowledge of mathematics, right? So having digital tools, just like having that calculator, doesn't make you a better technician or doesn't take away from your, from your ability unless you learn how to, you know, obviously it's not going to help you unless you learn how to use them. Unless you know what the readings, all it's going to do is get you to a wrong answer faster. In fact, if, if I asked you what's, you know, 10 times 10, and you don't have in your mind, well, that's got to be close to 100, or I ask you, what's, you know, what's a, a 11 times uh, a, a 11, times 11, right, or some, something that's a little bit more obscure, if you don't have an idea of what that's going to be, and I tell you that the answer is uh, twelve thousand and two, right? And, and you and all we do is get to the wrong answer faster, right? So, so it, it if you don't understand your job from the get go, digital tools won't make you any 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 better. But if you understand, uh, if you take the time to understand what the tools do, and you and you and you take the time to understand what you actually do for a living, then it will make you exponentially better. Because the tools don't make math- mathematical errors, the tools don't make input errors, and the tools don't take, um, you know, they, they don't have interpolation errors, they don't have uh, a parallax errors, you know, by looking at not looking at it straight on or whatever. Uh, they don't. They're they're much more precise. They're much more repeatable. 
and they're taking mounds of information and doing, you know, hundreds of calculations instantaneously that we would have to do over and over again to get the same result. In fact, if you think about measuring, like if you got a fixed orifice system and we're going to charge a fixed orifice, well, you know, you measure outdoor air temperature and you measure return air wet bulb temperature and, and you calculate your target superheat. Well, as soon as you turn the air conditioner on, I mean, immediately, the return air temperature starts dropping, the humidity starts to come out of the house. So your return air wet bulb is changing. So immediately, your target has now become a moving window. And, and the target is continually changing. So if I'm going to charge a system by target superheat, I need to go back in every couple of minutes and measure return air wet bulb temperature and recalculate my target because indoors is, is changing very quickly. And if I have an undersized system or if I have an oversized system, or a, um, a low load, it's even going to change faster. So being able to wirelessly make that measurement and continually update it and then continually recalculate the target has significant advantages over going in and trying to spin a wet bulb thermometer, you know, uh, uh, 25, 30 turns and get, keep it at a constant 600 feet per minute of air velocity and making sure you have distilled water on your wet socks so you get an accurate wet bulb and dry bulb measurement, then making sure you read it fast enough that you get a, an accurate wet bulb and then, you know, all those calculations. I mean, it's just, I can literally do in, in seconds what it would take you several minutes to do, and then I can continually do it where you've got to stop and remake your measurements. So the, the question becomes is, you know, because, because the equipment has gotten more and more um, sophisticated in, in, in the fact that we don't have – like receivers and equipment where we can have a little extra charge anymore, it's critically charged. Everything we work on is critically charged, whether it's TXV or fixed orifice. A few ounces of gas, is, a gas changes everything. We get on microchannel, it's even worse. And so you, you, you've got to be able to use these electronic tools if you're going to get that performance out of the system that your customer is paying for. Because there's just no way you can work with a level of, of speed and precision that is required and get it done with analog, analog gauges and old, old style thermometers. It's just, it's impossible. But the reason that most people don't know is because they never measured performance of equipment. In other words, they're not looking at, is my two ton unit doing two tons of cooling? They have, they're just not looking at that. And what's crazy is we're, we're HVAC technicians. We're paid to move heat energy. Yet nobody's measuring how much heat energy they're moving, right? I don't know. If, uh, you're in school, but when I was in school, we talked about these things in psychometrics and didn't, you know, psychometric charts and stuff, but nobody physically went out in the shop and measured the return air wet bulb and dry bulb, fire wet bulb and dry bulb and the airflow and then calculated out the, the capacity, you we know, did. and then calculated. <laughs> we, did, we did the calculations. Capacity. We did the calculations. That, that's, that was about it. We didn't actually exercise the, uh, like go through the motions and actually get the readings we need. We just, we just learned the calculations. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, or, or, or you use them to calculate airflow, let's say on a furnace, or you could use the you know, dry bulb temperature to calculate airflow, but it, 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 we just never, you know, we never did the things that we were supposed to do. We talked about them, but, you know, that's, that's where, again, we went into measure quick and we were like, okay, well, now we have all these readings. What can we do with them? And that, that takes it to the next level. So, you know, real, real quick, I think it's important we talk about, well, before we hook up the gauges, how do we know what the suction line and liquid line temperature should be? So, and we do a lot of things in Measure Quick that um, that are hard to do by hand unless you understand a little bit more in depth about system operation. Because when we talk about, you know, most of the time when we're talking about a system, we're talking about a nominal 400 CFM per ton, right? Which is good for most climates. But if you get in an extremely dry climate, you might need 450 to 525 CFM per ton, you get into a really wet climate like Florida, you might want to be down at 350 CFM per ton. Mm -hmm. And that, that's going to affect your system operation. It's going to affect your total capacity, your sensible capacity, your latent capacity, and it's going to affect the, um, uh, the coils, coil pressures. Um, in some cases, your superheat, uh, you know, on the machine, uh, could, could all vary a little bit. If microchannel, it could, it could mess with your subcooling a little bit. But in general, when we talk about design temperature differences, if, if it was 75 degrees in your home, 75 degree return air dry bulb, 
And by, by design, and this is where this came from. Um, I don't know if you, if you have any old, uh, Sporlin, uh, temperature pressure charts, but when I was, uh, younger, I remember seeing these temperature pressure charts. And then on the, I used to say TD, evaporator TD, temperature difference. So all this stuff with refrigeration, it would tell you a beverage cooler, floral cooler, you know, whatever. And it had temperature differences, the evaporator versus the return air. The temperature difference, I noticed, always stayed the same by application. So it would always say, like, you know, TD of a floral cooler is 10 degrees difference, 10 degrees colder than the box temperature. Mm-hmm. And they did that because uh, the higher the TD, the more dehumidification you do. So if you have, like, a really low TD, you have a box that's got higher humidity, you got a really high TD temperature difference, then you're going to have a uh, something that does a lot of dehumidification, right? So low TDs, no dehumidification, high TD, high, de- high dehumidification. So when you're when you're working on a piece of equipment, the the, the, the TDs are, are actually engineered. So on an air conditioner at 400 CFM per, do- per ton, the evaporator is going to be 35 degrees colder than the return air. So if I take my return air 75 minus 35, that's a 40 degree evaporator coil, yep. right? So now I know my evaporator coil temperature. Well, if I if I say okay, well my target superheat is ten. Well, I know that my my suction line has to be ten degrees hotter than my saturation temp. So if I have a four degree evaporator, forty plus ten is fifty. My suction line should be fifty degrees, right? If it's plus or minus five degrees, I'm good to go. That 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 accounts for that plus or minus five degrees accounts for a little bit of variability in your airflow and a little bit of variability in your uh, target superheat. And typically, target superheat on a fixed orifice or on a is plus or minus five. Now, if we had a, a TXV, we could have uh, anywhere from five to twenty-five degrees of superheat. Our suction line needs to be below sixty-five, but forty plus five. If I'm talking total superheat at the condenser. Right, I could have anywhere from forty plus five would be uh, a uh, a twenty a twenty uh, excuse me forty plus five would be a forty five degree evaporator. So I could have a forty five degree suction line all the way up to a sixty four degree suction line, and it could be okay. It depends on the line set length. Right now, I could go all the way back to the evaporator, and I expect it to be closer to that fifty degree because my TXV is going to maintain around ten degrees of superheat. I expect it to be closer to that fifty degrees at my outlet of my evaporator. But if I'm 50 foot or 100 foot away, I'm going to gain additional heat in the suction line. And I could be anywhere as low as 5 degrees of superheat or 6 degrees of superheat all the way up to 24. Mm-hmm. So I, and with a TXV, I'm going to have a wider range of the condenser because I don't know how much additional heat I'm gaining through my, uh, through my suction line. If my, if, if I'm measuring 50 at my evaporator outlet and I'm measuring 70, let's say at my, at my, uh, evaporator or my condenser inlet, well, then I know I need, you know, better suction line insulation because I'm picking up too much superheat between the evaporator outlet and the condenser inlet. And, and that's how we, you know, if we're picking up too much heat, like we're going through a hot attic or going across a hot roof or something, the only way to, to reduce the amount of heat transfer is to better insulate the line. See, right? But I got to throw, pic- throw in something there. So that's why I never got the beer can cold thing because I feel bad for anybody drinking a, a can of beer that's 50 degrees. I like I like mine down around 30, well, 35. Yeah, that's because you drink that's because you drink cheap beer. See, if you if you drink if <laughs> you drink you know? dark, if you drink because because you're drinking you're drinking thirty five degree beer, you're probably drinking Coors or something like that. If you drank really good uh, dark beer, then you'd expect it to be at British cellar temperature cellar you know, like basement, which is sixty five degrees, because you don't serve a dark beer at thirty eight degrees. That's yeah. what you know. Sure, the cheap American beers at that. Yeah, so, it makes makes sense. Again, Gu- Guinness is good warm. Guinness is good warm. Box, you just buy your beer can cold. See, that's what that's what messed up this whole industry. Honestly, is when we started importing beers. It, if if we had not imported beers, then service technicians would would understand what beer can cold is. But because we have dark beers and we have porters and we have lagers and we have you know American beers and they're all served at different temperatures, we can we've completely confused the industry. On what beer can cold is, so nobody ne- knows it. Ne- next podcast, we got to do st- strictly on beers because I'm learning something here. <laughs> well, in Measure Quick, if you go to the refrigeration section, there's an entire list of beers, and it tells you exactly what temperature that each beer should be served at. Oh wow, I didn't know so, that. That's cool. 
Yeah, in the refrigeration section, if you tap application, it'll tell you exactly what beer and what it should be served at based upon the sign temperature difference of the evaporator. So, yes, we are snobs about our beer at MeasureQuick, but it's with good reason because you don't want a warm bush light and you don't want a cold dark beer because if you're going to spend all this money on dark beer, you want to know what it smells like. You don't want to overcool it and you lose all the the, the bouquet of the beer. Mm-hmm. That's that's just ridiculous, you know. But if you're going to drink that <laughs> crappy uh, beer, then you want it as cold as possible, so you don't know what it smells like, and you don't have to put up with the taste. Yeah, yeah, so. no, it make, makes sense. <laughs> so, is there another side to right. that? You went through the evaporator side. Is there is the the condensing unit yeah, side so coming to play as well? Uh, absolutely. So, if we let's say we we're 95 degrees outside, right, and our condenser now. I don't know if you remember when I was in the 80s when I was in school, my teacher used to tell me, take your outdoor air plus 30, that's your condensing temp, right? It was a DTD of 30. And as time went on, we went to 10 sear. Well, that DTD went down to 25, and then we got to 13 sear down to 20, and now we get to 15 sear. It gets down to to uh, uh, 15, and some of the manufacturers of Linux even go as low as a 10-degree TD. But the, the lower the TD goes, remember heat, Heat is a quantity. It's a. It's not temperature is a measure of heat intensity. BTUs are a measure of heat quantity. So if we're going to transfer the same quantity of heat, then we and and temperature difference is the driver. Then the lower the temperature difference is, the more surface area we need, or the more coil we need to transfer the same quantity of heat. So as condensers um, got bigger and bigger, because they're still you know a, a two ton six year and a two ton uh, 17 sear they both move 24,000 BTUs well, why's got why's one got a huge condenser and one really really tiny well because the really tiny one has got to transfer the same quantity of heat at a higher temperature difference a higher TD and that higher TD means that the, the compression ratio of the cross compressor is higher because our head pressure has got to be higher so that means it's going to use more power. So how do we how do we get the system to operate with lower power? Well, we lower the TD. Well, that comes at a cost, a cost of a larger uh, condenser. We get a larger condenser, which costs more money, and now it's got to have a little more refrigerant in there also. But it's gonna it's gonna increase the efficiency of the equipment. Now, remember for refrigeration to work, because everybody goes, well, shit, why don't we just go to a zero degree TD? Well, because heat transfer would stop. In order for heat to transfer, we got to have a temperature difference. Mm-hmm. So you. you you know, that becomes a diminishing return where if the system, if the TD got too, too small and the condenser got too big, we wouldn't have enough pressure difference for the metering device to work cr- properly because we need about 100 PSI uh, across an R22 device to get full capacity and 160 pounds across a, a 410A metering device to, for it to work properly. So there's, when you look at, at um, the amount of, you know, the, the uh, metering device is a calibrated orifice, and whether it's a fixed orifice or a TXV, it's got to have the correct pressure drop across it to feed, a, feed a, the right amount of refrigerant. Now, that said, if we're looking at a condenser, and it's a 95-degree day, and plus 20, right? 95 plus 20 is 115, correct? Mm-hmm. So if, if the condenser, the condenser by design is 20 degrees hotter than the outdoor air, because it's got to be hotter than the outdoor air in order to reject heat. So, um, if it's a, if it's, if it's 95 and it's designed to be 20 degrees hotter, 95 plus 20 is 115. And if we're supposed to have 10 degrees of subcooling, well, 115 minus 10 would be 105. The beer liquid line temperature should be 105 degrees. So if I measure my liquid line temp and it's plus or minus three degrees of 110, then again, no need to put on the gauges, right? Now, if my liquid line temperature is way hotter than that, well, immediately I'm going to look at my condenser and say, what would cause the condenser, to, uh, the liquid line, to be hot? What do you think you'd look at right away? What would you be looking for if you had a really hot liquid line? We'd be looking at the, the cleanliness of the condenser coil or condenser fan moving or something along those lines, yeah, right? We'd be looking at the at the pitch in the condenser. You know, first of all, the coil, make sure the coil is clean. Yeah. Second, I'd probably look at my capacitor and make sure my capacitor is good because if my capacitor is failing, my condenser fan is going to go slower. I'm going to look at my condenser fan blade height and make sure that it's uh, lined up correctly with the orifice and the fan so it's 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 not too high or too low. And I'm going to look at my pitch of my condenser fan blade, make sure it's the right pitch for the condenser, right? And I'm going to look at, um, you know, it may, maybe at that point, if, if all that stuff tested out good, 
and, I, and my condenser's clean, now now I know I'm, I'm going to have to hook up my gauges. But before, I, you know, what I might do at that point is, uh, um, you know, pump down the system if it's got a discharge line and pump down the system and then uh, run the condenser fan by itself and do a non-condensable test, make mm-hmm. sure that I got pure refrigerant in there. I'm going to check the, the, the temperature outdoors compared to the, the, the corresponding pressure, make sure it's got pure refrigerant in there. If it's got pure refrigerant in there, then uh, then I'm going to go to the next step and now now testing the charge and making sure that I you know my subcooling's not too high or too low. Maybe I got an overcharge, undercharge, high liquid line temperature. I'm going to probably have an undercharge on the system. Um, but you know those are the, the steps that I go through. But calculating what that liquid line and suction line temp is just some simple mathematics. And then Measure Quick takes it to the next step by um, you know, quickly um, uh, doing those tests for you, dynamically doing them. So it's constantly looking at the true outdoor temperature. It's looking at the return air. And the more information you give measure quick, like if I tell it it's supposed to be moving 350 CFM per ton or 400 or 450, it's just going to more accurately calculate those targets because it it, it slightly changes the, the DTDs based upon the current conditions. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I mean, the stuff just blows my mind, to be honest with you. It really, it really just blows my mind or the water like it's hard to i'll have to go back and listen to this about three different times just to grasp a lot of what you were saying here but i mean it it's truly something that techs could use out in the field 100 percent. and and without without using gauges is it, awesome we save time and and we we save a system from potentially getting contaminated yeah, that's 100% right. And if you, again, if you don't know what the pressure should be, then what do you look at the gauges for in the first place? Because it's the last thing you should be doing. So it's not, you know, this stuff isn't rocket science. If you go back and look, there's a, if you do a web search for checking the charge without gauges, uh, in the AHR news, I did an article on it like in 2005. Um, that's a good place to start if you want a, a, like a, a text written article on that. Or if you go into Measure Quick, and you go into the education section, there's a whole write-up on non-invasive system testing, what it is and how it works and things you can test. And we're, we're just touching the tip of what you can do non-invasively, but there's pretty much, I can tell you, 100% of everything on that air conditioner, how it's working, with, except for the pressures. So I can tell you the, the output, the BTU capacity, the total sensible latent, the EER currently, the approximate steer rating of the equipment, the temperature split, I can tell you, you know, if it, uh, the, the, uh, if the superheat and the subcooling are in the right range, um, you know, there's, I don't know, there's probably a hundred things I can tell you about that unit without hooking up the pressures. The only thing I can't tell you is physically, uh, what the pressures are. You know, I can, t- I can tell you what I'm sure they are based upon all the operation of the equipment. And then all we do is hook up the gauges and confirm that. But anybody that's used measure quick, after you use measure quick for a couple of months, you go, wow, this thing nails the targets every time. You should sort of have an epiphany and go, wow, if it knows the pressures every time, why don't I even hook up the pressures more? Because they're already telling me what they should be. Mm-hmm. In, an, in, a, in an non-invasive test mode, we also, we do put um, blue needles on there. So so it'll show you, you know, if you really, uh, the reason I did that is we had some, some technicians that were out, and the, you know, the customers always seen the technician hook up the gauges. And, you know, there, there's certain, like, some, some customers are going, oh, well, I don't think you're doing your job right if you're looking up the gauges because, you know, they don't understand process. So we literally built gauge needles in the measure quick so we can tell somebody, well, we're, we're checking the pressures non-invasively. So here's what they here's what they would be. That's pretty and cool. Yeah, it's just, I like that. Yeah. But it's just a visual indicator. So when, when you're looking at you don't have blanks on your gauges. And, and also for technicians, when you do hook up the gauges, then you're going to see what we told you the, the pressures were. We're within a you know one two psi of what we of what we thought they would be, and um, you know they're I mean they're they're always very very close. They're within a few psi, and what you really need well, we, everything we do in Measure Quick is actually based on saturation temperature. So if you ever look at a temperature pressure chart, you'll notice that typically on the low side, um, very small pressure changes result in larger temperature swings than on the high side, where we can have. You know, 10 psi may not even cause that much change in temperature because it's just because refrigerants don't have a linear temperature pressure relationship. So, um, but you can look at it, you know, just uh, download the Danfoss charging app and you can look at that and look at the high side, look at the low side. You'll see when we drive everything off temperature, a few, um, 
a few degrees of temperature, like plus or minus two or three degrees, is going to result in a substantial pressure change. So we don't need to we don't need to get down to like one psi of accuracy on the high side because what we're really concerned with is saturation temp or condensing temp. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of um, variability in that in that pressure that'll still give you the same saturation temperature. So if you you know if you take it from especially when you figure plus or minus three degrees of saturation of condensing temp, you look at how much that swings. It's pretty substantial. You'd be surprised. Yeah, yeah. So I I think that. Um... One person at a time, one tech at a time, we'll start changing minds slowly. And <laughs> maybe five, ten years from now, we'll, we'll all be checking systems without gauges. So hopefully, um, but but we still need we still, <laughs> we still need to go out and purchase gauges just in case we need to ever do a an evasive test. I guess that would be the the opposite of non evasive. But I um I got to get back in to check this Liebert before I, I head home. But I, I gotta I gotta thank you for all your time and, and your knowledge and your input on this because it, it was it was phenomenal. Like I said, I got to go back and and listen to this a few more times just to grasp some of the the things that you you shot out really fast at us there. Yeah, yeah, no, no problem. And uh, it was, I think it was a uh, like I said a, a good primer to this. We could we could probably go into some more detail on another podcast. I think it was just a good one just to get. Uh, basics of it down so we could say you know just in principle talk about what we're doing but there's obviously more could be discussed on this topic and uh an hour is just uh enough to give you get your you know just to get your your mind saturated with what what's possible but i think it was a good uh, it was a good introduction into non-invasive testing and uh yeah i think uh hopefully some people will get a lot out of it at least get them at least get them thinking because that's that's where we got to get you know we got to get people just starting to think about this stuff and if we do then they'll appreciate, you know, what, what you can do and do it much faster. And guys doing what you're doing, when you're doing maintenance work and PM work, this is invaluable because, man, if I could, if I could shave, you know, 20, 30 minutes off every single job and I could, you know, uh, uh, not contaminate the charges and not lose refrigerant, not, especially on a full maintenance. My gosh, if I'm on full maintenance, I don't want to gauge anything because it's just, it's not going to do anything good for me. So that was a cool one, wasn't it? So much information thrown at us through that interview that you can understand why I said that you probably need to go back and listen to this more than once. I know I'm going to, 100%, because it was so solid. And the moral of the story is, listen guys, gauging up is not necessary every time you you, you walk up to a system on a PM. I've been doing this for years, not as technically sound as Jim explained it but I've been doing it with success and if I've been doing it with success so can you guys okay I'm not saying we don't need gauges in our lives because we do because eventually we will need to put them on eventually but what I'm saying is if a machine seems like it's running right on a PM why gauge up why risk it there's no need and the Measure Quick app looks like it's going to be pretty badass going forward for the techs that haven't used it yet, the non-invasive test to check out systems without gauging up. If you guys are already using this, then you guys already know how well it works. Okay, I want to put it to the test as well, but I know I'm. And when I say how well it works, is because I'm, I get feedback all the time from from techs all over the place about different tools and apps and everything. And measure quick is always one that's spoken very highly of nobody ever says a bad word about it because there's so much thought put into the app into the application. So thanks, Jim. I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome back on the podcast anytime. So we got to do something in the future and get some more of your knowledge out there. Anyway, guys, that's it. Happy HVAC and I'm out.